You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delicia, and this episode features Michael Swanson. Michael is a TV studio executive, movie producer, and Broadway investor. He's also the founder and CEO of celebrated entertainment production company, Faith Filmworks, Inc., A native of the South Side of Chicago, Michael attended the University of Notre Dame and originally planned to pursue a degree in political science. But after hearing Spike Lee give a talk on his film, Do the Right Thing, Michael envisioned a new career path for himself and would go on to earn a degree in film and television production. He eventually spent a year at Princeton Theological Seminary and soon after landed a position in the sales department at NBC. But in his free time, Michael was producing film projects for his wife, Christine, as in Christine Swanson, the award-winning filmmaker who was featured on episode 118 of the podcast. After receiving critical acclaim for the short film Two Seasons, Michael and Christine decided to take over Hollywood. He left his job at NBC and they moved out west to jump headfirst into their company, Faith Filmworks. Michael produced their first full-length feature film, All About You, which was successful in its own right despite being rejected by major studios. Faith Filmworks was officially on the map with additional projects in the pipeline. But after the financial crisis of 2008 severely impacted the company's revenue and his family's livelihood, Michael made the decision to go in-house. Today, he's a senior vice president at NBC Universal, where he's overseen production on such shows as Community, Parks and Recreation, and Good Girls. And he continues to produce projects independently. 25 years in show business does not come without its peaks and valleys, but throughout his career, Michael has remained constant in his faith and lived his life with a heart of a servant. So here's his story. Please enjoy. Michael, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm great, Delisha. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I think this is the first time we've had a husband and wife appear on the show as separate guests. So I've, I've heard Christine Swanson's version of some events, and I can't wait to hear you now talk about your story and also some of the things that she mentioned as well. So I think this is going to be a good one. Great. I'm excited. All right, let's get into it. Who is Michael Swanson? I am, first and foremost, I believe, I like to say a Jesus servant. You know, um, I like to see myself as a vessel of God to do his work here, especially in the industry uh, that I'm in. Um, I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. I'm a husband to Christine. We've been married for 26, so it'll be 26 years, July 30th, so I'm not too far away. I'm a father of four wonderful children, three boys and one daughter. Their ages are 14, um, 11, 14, 17, and 19. I am also an entrepreneur. I'm a business owner. I'm currently senior vice president of production at NBC Universal. I'm an Emmy winner. I'm a Broadway investor now. I invested in the Broadway show called Ain't Too Proud about the life and times of the temptations. I'm really proud of that that show. Uh, I'm a vegan. And uh, I don't know, I can be, I guess, complex at times and pretty simple and straightforward at other times. Well, there's a lot to unpack here. Um Primarily, I think what struck struck me is this idea um, of you work in the business, but also being deeply rooted in faith and a servant. And those are not those are not two things that you hear often with depth under it, right? And and I'm I'm clear how deeply your faith 
runs. Um, and I know that that means something for real. It's not just a, a surface thing. And I really want to get into that, maintaining your faith and integrity in this business, despite how dark it can be and, and ruthless it can be. But before we go there, tell me how uh, you went from being a boy from the South side of Chicago to then interested in uh, film and television. Well, growing up in Chicago, I was definitely a church boy. You know, I was a junior deacon at my church, Antioch. This church, yes. <laughs> yes. And so everywhere I looked, I had examples of pastors, ministers. You know, my my pastor at Antioch was Reverend Wilbur Daniel. Uh, growing up in Chicago, Jesse Jackson was a fixture in our city. Reverend Jackson, who I've got to meet and work with over the years. Here in Washington. So ministers, pastors, and politicians. Those were the pillars uh, in Chicago. So here in Washington was our first black mayor. My mother was a precinct captain. So I was involved as a little boy in politics and campaigning. Uh, And so I thought initially growing up that one day I would become an attorney, you know, or this, this public servant or politician, because those were the examples I saw all around me. Um, And then when I got to college, I attended the University of Notre Dame. My major was political science. I had an internship after my first year of college with one of the congressmen from um, Chicago, from the South Side, Charles Hayes, who, whose daughter happened to have gone to high school with my mother, and we worked on his campaign as well. So I was his intern, and during that summer of 1990, I had this front row seat of really seeing how politics work especially at the federal level, like being, you know, going on the Hill every day, um, being around other members of Congress and more importantly, watching Charles Hayes kind of navigate the whole political system. Who was in, And Charles Hayes was this good guy, labor guy. I remember his campaign slogan was, you know, from the people, for the people. But I also uh, saw how he struggled uh, just trying to cut deals and try to keep his integrity intact. And that was when I realized maybe I don't want to go into politics. Maybe I can be this this public servant some other kind of way. And that's when I decided that I would focus on business and become an entrepreneur. And instead of trying to, you know, create legislation to affect change, first and foremost, throughout Chicago and my community, I would instead maybe create wealth, you know, through business and do things privately and start scholarship funds and uh, and all those things that I I thought I could do um, through politics. And so that was a really big wake up call for me. And uh, then the sophomore year of college began and Spike Lee came to our campus to talk about his movie, Do the Right Thing. And so I knew I was ready to move on from my major political science and was looking for something else to do. When Spike came to talk to us at Notre Dame, that's when a light bulb went off, both for for Christine, my wife Christine, and also for me. And that is when we decided to change our majors. And I focused on film, uh, film and television production, changed my major. And even then, I was the first in my family to go to college. So I wanted to major in something that would give me security and a safety net. I did film and television production, but my goal was to take that degree and then pursue a a career as an entertainment entertainment attorney. Um, I felt that if it didn't work out in film and television, I could at the very least practice law. Uh, So that's what I did. But since that was my major, I still had to learn how to edit. I had to learn how to 
shoot, direct. I worked on film projects that my classmates had, um, studied film theory, did all of that. Worked on the television production, did broadcast journalism. And when I was ready to graduate from Notre Dame, I applied to some law schools, got into some law schools, but knew in my heart that I would be miserable as an entertainment attorney. So I decided to defer. I moved to Washington, D.C. and worked at a nonprofit organization. And while I was at um, while I was in D.C., I decided, OK, I'm not going to go to law school. I want to do something that focuses on film and television and within the entertainment industry, but but come at it from a business perspective. And that's when I decided I'm going to do it. I decided to uh, apply to Princeton Theological Seminary really for personal enrichment. Um, I went to Princeton and my goal there was to build on the foundation, build a foundation before I launched this career in entertainment. And um, I really wanted to study scripture on a graduate level and study the Greek and the Hebrew and really spend time just breaking scripture down. Uh, after a year at Princeton, I decided to move to New York. Christine and I had just gotten married uh, before I started Princeton. So that was in 1994. And we moved to New York. Christine began at New York University's Tisch School of the Art and studied filmmaking on a graduate level. And I started a job at NBC at 30 Rock in the sales department. So I sold um, primetime space for shows like Seinfeld, Friends, ER, News Radio, uh, and also the Today Show. And I felt that was a good introduction, although it still wasn't where I ultimately wanted to, to be within the entertainment industry. But now I was working for an entertainment company. And it was a great time to be there because this was in the mid 90s when NBC was number one. We had all these great shows. And it was wonderful for me to see the business from that perspective, from a from a business and sales perspective. And also while at NBC, I produced all of Christine's graduate film school work, her documentaries, her short films. And that was a great education for me as well. And I realized that producing was something that, that I enjoyed and kind of came easy to me. I was this kind of outside of the box thinker. I was great at raising money and getting in-kind donations. And um, that's when it all clicked. I said, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to produce. And it, it fell in line with me ultimately wanting to start a business, a company, and it would become an entertainment company. Um, so while still working at NBC, I started Faith Filmworks. And our goal was to create movies that connected with people's hearts, that were entertaining, uh, love stories, romantic comedies, romantic dramas, documentaries that were memorable. And, uh, and we did that. There was, one, there was one short film we did called Two Seasons, just a 15-minute short film. I would take vacation time from NBC and go work on our productions. And we made Two Seasons. And when it was done, I felt it was so well done. And done at such a high quality level that I felt we should submit it into some film festivals and not just, you know, stop at showing it to the professor and Christine's classmates. So we submitted it to a bunch of film festivals and two seasons was invited to the Sundance Film Festival. It was invited to the Acapulco Black Film Festival uh, and actually won the HBO Short Film Award at that festival, which came with an HBO development deal as the prize. It was nominated for a Student Academy Award. Um, 
CNN did a piece on us as this husband and wife filmmaking team. And, and then things just began to spiral. And that's when my colleagues at NBC began to really realize what I was doing in my free time. And, and they were so, I mean, they knew Christine was in film school, but they didn't really understand my involvement. And that's when Christine and I understood that now's the time to really parlay the success of, in particular, that short film and branch out and work for ourselves full time. And we decided to relocate from New York to Los Angeles. And that was in January of 1999. And that was it, Faith Filmworks. Um, I remember our first project was a, a small job that we got from the March of Dimes. They wanted us to create a public service announcement. So we went back to New York and made that. And um, But our goal was to make narrative feature films. So um, that's what we set out to do. And it was daunting. As you know, as an entrepreneur, there are a lot of ups and downs and, you know, highs and lows, but we were so fulfilled. We were, we were finally working for ourselves, doing something that we both enjoyed. And Christine was just such a great and still is such a phenomenal writer and director. Um, so we kind of ended up starting our company and moving to Los Angeles. Which is a, a great story, which I want to dig into more. But take me back to working at NBC and working on these projects on the side. Like, so all of us know we've been a corporate employee. This is entertainment, but it's still very much corporate. There are all these documents you sign. There's this expectation that you're going to give 110% to this organization that's, that's your employer. So were you surreptitious or secretive about the work that you were doing intentionally to, to avoid running a foul at work? Or is that, was that celebrated? I mean, you alluded to your coworkers starting to find out, but was pursuing... Uh, other creative outlets and working on other projects celebrated and supported at a large network at the time? You know, once they realized the success that we were gaining from our projects, it was celebrated. And I think that helped make it easier for me to decide to move on. You know, it's like they always say that you in sales that you are wearing golden handcuffs, especially when you are number one and, you know, we would have these two hour uh, lunch breaks so we can entertain uh, clients from the advertising agencies. And, you know, I was on a team, we were the first in, in broadcast network history to book $2.2 billion after an upfront selling period. So we were just on cloud nine. So the environment there was always celebratory. And um, so when they realized that there was something behind what we we're doing and it was being celebrated outside and winning awards and going to these great festivals, they were so supportive. And I also think they were supportive because I was still at the beginning of my career and I knew I didn't want, and they knew I didn't want a career in sales. Right. And, and I'll come back to what I do now and how my boss back in New York was really instrumental in me uh, having the position I have now. But yeah, they were so supportive and really embraced what we were trying to do and threw a big party for me, actually, before we moved to Los Angeles. So we're talking about sales for primetime NBC. What were the, the hot shows at the time? I'm trying to remember what was on NBC in the mid I mean, boy, Seinfeld, at the time, it was making like 550000 to $600,000 dollars um, for every 30 second spot. Um, ER was big. That whole, that was must see TV. So that whole Thursday night uh, comedy lineup and, uh, and then those dramas and Third Rock from the Sun. Uh, there's so many shows, even the Today Show. The thing is when you have 
such hit shows, you can then promote other things across the network. And you had this domino effect that every, at that point, everything was really doing well uh, as far as the ratings were concerned. The Today Show was number one. Tom Brokaw was number one with the Evening News show. And then, of course, Primetime was number one. So those were hot shows. And it was a, a brand new world to me. So you're, you're in what many would consider an enviable, enviable position, doing really well at work, flying high on the independent piece. And you decide, OK, seeing how supportive they are at, at the network, this is my time to fulfill this thing and, and pursue this entrepreneurship. And you moved to L.A. from one expensive city to another expensive city. But what were some of the considerations that went into that decision to jump in with both feet from a financial and a logistical perspective? I felt at the time that it was a perfect time to do this. We didn't have any children yet. We were still young and maybe naive in a lot of ways, uh, courageous. And I also had mentors who were entrepreneurs, very successful entrepreneurs who I watched and kind of monitored. And, and I just, just felt it was time for, and Christine too, we just felt it was time to go for it. Like if we didn't do it now, would we ever do it? Number one. And, um, and sometimes it's important to leave kind of the safety net of a great paying job. Um, if your heart's not in it again, I knew I didn't want a career in sales. And frankly, I looked at some of the older people in my, in, in sales and, uh, their entire careers were in sales and they didn't look to be the happiest people, you know? And I just kind of noticed that and kind of tucked it away. I'm like, you know, I knew I did, I knew I didn't want that, but I felt that I would learn so much by having that experience. And I obviously did. And uh, it was just, again, another feather that I put in my hat or a tool in my toolbox that I felt would help me. And it has uh, for later in my career. Absolutely. So you get, this spot with the March of Dimes, I presume that goes well. Um, and eventually you got to All About You. How did that come about? Well, Christine had written a fantastic script, All About You. And we wanted to make a love story that we felt was not being produced through the Hollywood studio system. We wanted to tell stories about us as Black people in a way that we weren't accustomed to seeing at that time. And we felt we had the tools to do it and the sensibility to do it. Um, so the first step was taking this great script and raising money for it, um, which we did. And I also felt being in Los Angeles was important because we had kind of conquered New York in our own way. New York is the gritty, independent filmmaking, you know, playground where you have to just make things work, you know, make a, a quarter look like it's a hundred dollars, which we did a lot. Um, and so Los Angeles was, we had only visited Los Angeles maybe a few times, but we felt the the business is based here. The studios are here. The talent is here for the most part. Um, and so by moving to Los Angeles, we felt it would set us up for success in trying to pull everything we needed together to produce our first feature film, All About You. Um, and we did it. You know, um, we realized very early that the script has to be good. And I think that gave us a lot of leverage. Um, it was a great script. And so many actors had not read great scripts. So everyone really responded to the material. And that forced us to create a model that we have now, which is the story is the star. The script is the star. 
We learned very early not to let certain actors of a higher caliber to come and kind of hijack your project with their demands or with because the story is the star. And we also decided that everyone who worked on our project would have to sacrifice in some way, had to kind of have to get behind our vision and rally behind what we're trying to do, which I think was such a bigger thing uh, for Black audiences. This was not about, obviously, we're in business and, it was, you know, it has to be profitable. You want to make your money back. But this was a bigger thing that we were a part of. Um, we felt that it was so important to put images of ourselves in a way that would affect young girls, for example, who are watching this movie to see themselves on screen and cast a certain way. And so it was just a different mentality that we had. And we felt this would help kind of carve out our lane of storytelling and, and give us longevity in this business. Um, so with All About You, we started casting. You know, me, Renee Lee Scosberry came in after seeing maybe over 100 actresses uh, to play the lead role of Nicole. That was her first feature film. And now she's gone on to do phenomenal things. Uh, Teron Brooks was uh, our lead actor. And then we sprinkled the, the film, the rest of the cast with more recognizable faces like um, Debbie Allen, Vanessa Bell Calloway, Rachman Dunbar, who was actually new at that time. That was his first feature film, even before he went on to, to do the Showtime series Soul Food. Uh, Lou Myers, Tico Wells, um, Chris Spencer, they just really responded to the script. And it was a fun, fun time. But again, there are also a lot of challenges. I think with anything worthwhile, you're going to kind of, you know, have some speed bumps and have to jump over some hurdles. And that's where, as a producer, I had to deal with that to kind of prevent it from affecting the creative process, from dealing with unions and Teamsters and threats of trying to shut us down. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of the, the story of All About You. Um, I can talk about it more if you... Yeah, so there, there's something specific that I want to talk about because you had two seasons which had done well on the film uh, festival circuit, won some awards. So, you know, when things like that start to create a bit of a buzz, people stand up and take notice, right? So you, you have that in your that feather in your hat, and now you have this full-length feature film that you're looking to do. How hard was it? Uh, well, this is a two-part question. Help the audience... For those who don't know what it means to produce a film, what that means, number one. And then number two, how hard was it to raise the funds to actually get this movie made? A producer pulls everything together from raising the financing to produce the project to, and I think I'm more of a creative producer. So I'm involved in the casting process. I'm negotiating deals with um, our actors, our crew members, I'm overseeing the finances. I'm negotiating location deals. Um, and also overseeing a lot of the people who we may hire as production heads, you know, making sure they stay on budget. Uh, a producer is with the project from the script stage or even sometimes the idea. I mean, we have ideas now that will develop and it will eventually be made into a screenplay that we will then make into a movie. So I'm involved from the idea or the screenplay stage all the way through distribution, working on marketing plans, de developing the, the, uh, the poster, the artwork, ads, uh, soup to nuts, everything that goes into producing and releasing the movie. Uh, I'm pretty mm -hmm. on with. And as far as raising the money is concerned, we it wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be. And I think that has a lot to do with two seasons doing so well. And uh, so we were able to go to some friends of the family, basically, 
were entrepreneurs who I felt not only wanted to invest in what we were doing, but more importantly, they were investing in Christine and me, right? They saw our passion. They saw our skill set. They saw, um, they saw what we're trying to do for our culture. And, you know, a lot of times you find people who invest in people as opposed to the actual project or the company they're investing in you. So we were blessed with investors like that. And, um, I remember, you know, one of my mentors said, before I started this daunting process, because feature films is so much different from producing short films. It's just a different animal. And he said, everything is not going to work out like you think it's going to work out. And I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, I rebuke that, you know, already. It's like, you know, and this is such, you know, one of the, the greatest American entrepreneurs, like who, who's done so well um, in his business life. but. Um, but he said that. And at the end of that whole experience, I'm like, wow, he was definitely right. And I could talk about all those things too. Uh, but so that's how we got all about you up and off the ground. And, um, we thought that when we were finished with the movie because of our cast, because of these lush settings like San Francisco, which became a character in the film and Napa Valley where we shot, uh, we just felt this movie was set apart. And audiences would just love it. And they did. It won a bunch of film festival awards. And, you know, um, people really responded well to it. And, and even say this became this classic film. But my own personal goals were, okay, this film is going to, when we're done as an independent film, you make the film and then you shop it around to distributors. Sometimes after, you know, taking it to film festivals, you may hear about films being uh, picked up at Sundance from a studio and then they release it wide. So that was my thinking. I'm like, okay, when this film is done, it's going to come out 3000 screens and it's going to break box office records. And, you know, surely God has placed us here in this industry to do these great things and to be his voice. And we're going to be like the Christian Spielberg and we're going to make all this money and, you know, the sea will part for us. And none of that happened. And I think none of that happened because if it would have happened the way I thought it should happen or how I felt we were entitled for it to happen, I think that we would have become these, Christine and I probably would have become these arrogant, rich Christian filmmakers who you could not tell anything to, you know? And on the flip side, I was like, okay, this is your first project. I have to humble you. You're still learning. I'm not going to take you from step one to step 500, just like that. Although he can, but that would be a disservice to us. It's like if, if my 11 year old daughter says, okay, I want the keys to your car because I love your car. I want to drive it. But no, you're not equipped to handle that yet. And that was a, that was um, one of the first big lessons we learned uh, because the film did not find distribution. The studios told me that it wasn't edgy enough. They said at the time, well, you know, it's a great story, but you don't have any stars. You know, you need someone like Will Smith or Halle Berry in your movie. And ironically, we took the film out on the festival circuit and we always have a Q&A after every screening. And one of the first questions we would always receive was, how did you get so many stars in your movie? Like they know Mr. Gaines from A Different World. They know Choir Boy from The Five Heartbeats. Debbie Allen. It's like, what? How did you get these people? Isn't this an independent film? And then it was so good. So as a business person and now this budding film producer, I realized that what Hollywood says 
is one thing because they don't have the pulse, their finger on the pulse, like I may have. Um, and what the audience for whom we make our movies say says is very are very different things. And I realized that I'm making movies for my audience. And so hot. So we didn't get any distribution deal offers for the movie. And I decided, OK, you know, there's a lot of money at stake here. We have to figure out a way to get the film out. And I decided to launch our own distribution for the film and take it around ourselves. Kind of like, you know, you may hear about, you know, people talk about the Chitlin circuit, yes. church plays. I'm like, OK, that's what we're about to do up in here. And I decided to start out in Chicago and uh, I was it's a very expensive venture, a little scary. But again, I think we were, you know, we were just kind of on a mission because we knew what we had with this movie. It won all the black film festivals and people loved it. And I felt it deserved a, a larger audience. Now, it may not come on all 3000 screens like I had hoped, but we're going to make sure we do well by this movie. We started in Chicago since that was my hometown. And Lisa, I didn't mention Lisa Ray, who's in the movie, too. Lisa Ray is from Chicago. So I had Lisa Ray come in and do interviews. Um, and Debbie Allen called in to do interviews because what we were doing was starting a release of the film, a national release ourselves. I rented out the Museum of Science and Industry. They had this 800-seat auditorium there. And this was back in the days when we were still shooting 35 millimeter film. So they didn't have a projector. I had to rent a projector. Just every, It was just so expensive to do all of this. But um, we pulled it off. I rented the museum for two weeks. We had 17 screenings over those two weeks. And we had over 5,000 people come over those two weeks to see the movie at a museum, auditorium at a museum. And... Uh, what I learned from that was word of mouth is really key. Again, it goes back to the story being the star, having a good script, having something that connects with people, having something that makes them laugh, make them cry. And the actors who are recognizable in the film is just kind of gravy if you have a great story. And so folks start coming to see our movie. And now we became distributors. We were taking out ads in the newspapers. I had commercials running on BET in certain zip codes throughout the city. The Universal Circus was in town. So every night we would put printed out 15,000 postcards to just blanket the city to promote the, the run. So every night while they were inside watching the circus, we would put postcards on every windshield. We would put, you know, postcards on every windshield of, of every car at church and church parking lots. Pastors, including Jeremiah Wright, who I love to this day because of what he did for us. He had every member of his church. You, he said, you have to go and support. You know, he brought us to the church. You have to go and support this movie. Uh, so Reverend Jeremiah Wright. And so this was this wonderful groundswell of, of the community coming to support this project. And again, Hollywood said there's no interest in this. You know, this is not edgy enough for the black audience. And we did so well in that city. And so we started in Chicago and then went on to Detroit and Milwaukee and Charlotte and New York and Dallas and LA, just kind of all over the place. And we did it over about a year and a half span and did really well financially. Um, I think Christine was pregnant with our second son at the time when we started Chicago. So um, there's a lot on the line, but it was the most rewarding experience I've had to date in my career because I remember when we started on the first day in Chicago, we didn't have, so I had paid the museum this 
big, gigantic check uh, to be there. And then uh, all the the advertising and marketing and, you know, I paid for the radio to do remotes from the venue. Uh, we did giveaways. And so I was becoming this this marketer, right, um, to entice people to come see this movie. Um, but on the first night, I remember we didn't have enough money to pay our projectionist. It's this big 35. And this is before we started that that first screening on a Friday night. And um, Christine said, well, you know, why don't you just tell me you'll pay them after the screening? Because we were just, we had depleted everything by that point to watch this release. And so I spoke with him. He's like, yeah, just pay me afterwards. And so now it's like, it was just a relief. And then now you're just praying for people to show up. And right. to having the screening, I always love adding value. I love exceeding people's expectations. So we only charge $10 to come see the movie. Uh, but in addition to that, we provided um, an opportunity for people to buy the script that we turned into a book, a shooting script. So now we had merchandise. We had a book. We had the soundtrack, which was just hot. I mean, that movie has a lot of music in, in it. Um, so the soundtrack was top notch. We had movie posters. We had a Q&A after every screening. And then I would bring in certain cast members on certain days to be a part of our Q&A so they can meet the audience. Um, so it was a great value for our audience, $10 to come and have this experience, this night out. Once people started to see the movie, then word of mouth spread. And then I was able to just stop my my advertising because there's there's nothing more valuable than word of mouth marketing from people who've seen the movie. And then people would return. People would come back with their sorority sisters, their colleagues, their church members. And it was by the second weekend, we were just, sell, we sold, we were selling out this 800 seat auditorium. And you would look up in the balcony and people were standing around the perimeter of the balcony. And it was the most overwhelming experience that I've had because I'm like, I love me some black people so much because here we are trying to do something for us, you know, uh, and see us in a way that we typically didn't see ourselves in a beautiful love story. And it just connected. And so that is all I need. And so from that point on, that's how we produce. That's how we tell our stories. And that was an, an important lesson for me to learn at the very beginning of my career as a producer, because now it's all about the audience. So this was before Instagram, social media, this, you know. And you actually brought up what I was going to say, like it was black Twitter before there was black Twitter, like that word of mouth in real time, not as a hashtag or an IG story. And we would have our email list where people can sign up so that they can stay abreast of where we're going next. So if you have relatives in Detroit, tell them we'll be there on these dates. And it was the most magical thing to the point um, the second weekend when we were at the Museum of Science and Industry, we had, the, based on our ticket sales and how much money we made that weekend, we had the number one movie in the country. Another thing I did, I decided to open up our movie. It was in October 2002. I opened up All About You at the museum on the same day that Brown Sugar opened because I wanted to prove, just for myself maybe, I want to prove that Black people will go see more than one black movie, even if they open up on the same day. So that was just kind of my little, you know, case study that I did and people showed up. So by the second weekend, I mean, the word of mouth, it was, it was wonderful. And, and so you take 
the disappointing news that no studio is going to release the movie or get behind it. And you make something from it that turns into the most wonderful experience that you could have ever imagined. And that's what I always go back to that experience whenever I do projects. And now you can go straight. You most definitely can go straight to your audience if you needed to. So All About You was to date a lot of trial by fire. And um, I also want to say this about All About You that I had to just kind of wrestle with later. Let's looking back because it did well. It made its money. It was the number one seller at at Walmart and Target uh, for our home distributor, you know, once it got on, on DVD. But, you know, you look back and you're like, wow, it should have made even more money than that. And, you know, people who love it, love it. I wish even more millions of people could have seen it. But while we were shooting All About You and going through the ups and downs of keeping the production moving forward with all of the challenges coming from the union and other distractions that we endured, two people, two people got saved on our production. And and it was that type of atmosphere. You know, it was just not a typical Hollywood set. You know, we were just this young husband and wife couple and Christine was pregnant actually while we were shooting the movie, but we didn't tell anybody. So we were, you know, this unassuming couple who had this incredible passion and vision to make this movie special. And so it was an environment that was conducive to that. I mean, Toronto Renee uh, would pray with us, you know, Um, but two people, um, you know, found Christ through the making of that movie. And years later, when I look back and I always maybe try to second guess, or I should have done this, or why didn't we think of that? I'm reminded that maybe the only reason that this film got the funding to be made was for those two people. Maybe the only reason that it all came together. I think God loves those two people so much that he can orchestrate all of this to fall into place and create this environment where these two people are working on our set and they find a relationship with him. And it was just a click. And so that's when I started to understand that it's so not about me. It's so not about us. Um, We're vehicles. And sometimes we're used to provide a platform so that he can meet people where they where they are. And I began to change my definition and understanding of what success is. You know, it's not about how many screens our movies came out on. It's not about awards. It's not about any of that. If again, if we can reach one person, that's perhaps why all of this was done in the first place. And I think you know everything. If if you believe that you are moving in purpose. There are lessons to be learned. It's everything that happens is about growth and pushing you towards what you've been put on this planet to do. But I think in our humanness, and a lot of his ego, you know, I love um, Dr. Wayne Dyer, the late, great Dr. Wayne Dyer, when he says ego stands for edging that out. So some of it is just, you know, feeding ourselves, but also too, having to stare into the face of the people that believed in us, that we sold on a specific vision that we had that may not have been God's vision or, or God's plan for um, a story or a project, et cetera. So, um, and, and one of the other things that I, I want to note as well is that critical acclaim and commercial success in Hollywood are not always synonymous. Um, I think that that's important to note. So, you, you make this great film. And I was like chuckling at the names you mentioned, because when I first saw it, it was literally everybody I responded to. It was like, there's Mr. Gaines, there's Choir Boy, there's everybody's favorite auntie, Debbie Allen, right? Vanessa Bell Calloway. These are all names that we know as a community, right? And we know what movies they've been in and what television shows they've been in. But you, you mentioned that really it was family and friends that believed in you and and 
and you sold them on the idea of you and Christine to make this project. But then you had to pivot and do something else when you realized it wasn't going to get distribution the way that you thought. But I think, you know, I talk to people who invest in a lot of things, startup, films, plays, et cetera. And those who are really, really deep pocketed, they will tell you, oh, plenty of things that didn't pop the way that I thought it would. I don't even remember, you know, the things that, that I, everything that I invested in, but those that we have personal connection with, that's very different than an arm's length transaction. Someone just writing you a check and saying, hope it works, but if it doesn't, eh, I, I rolled the dice on you. Let's buy something else. So even though you were able to find a different type of success, right, that may not have reached what you thought it was going to reach from more traditional challenge cha- uh, channel. And even though you had these two people who found Christ through the process, there's still that very real piece of people who believed and invested in you um, and put money behind the project thinking that it was going to do something different. So how did that play out on your psyche? finding gratitude and and seeing the lessons and what was meant to happen here for you and what you were meant to learn, but also having to go back to these people and say, Hey, actually, you know, we we made a splash and our community really came out for us, but it wasn't AMC or whatever was hot. I don't even remember what theaters were hot back then. um, So yeah. So how do you, how does that play out in your psyche? Well, I think I put so much pressure on myself because you're right. You don't want to disappoint them. They believed in you from jump and and you take that very seriously. Um, the thing is, they continue to encourage us throughout the entire process. I remember we were in Chicago. I'm like, you guys want to fly in? It's like, you know, I sensed just everybody in the city was talking about the movie. So I said, you know, this second weekend is going to be huge because it was just building and building and building. And, and now when I, you know, I stopped, I stopped the advertising because I just let everything just took over. It was autopilot by that point. So I knew by the second weekend, it was just going to be out of control. So I said, you know, you guys want to come to Chicago and just experience this? And it's like, oh, no, no, you know, you got to do your thing. And because I think secretly, I'm like, I, I want I want them to prove to you that this is good and that there's an audience for it and they're responding to it. And we may not have made a hundred million dollars, but it's connecting with people and we're going to get money back and just continue to hang in with us. Um, but again, we had conversations after all of this and they reminded me that, you know what, we invested in you guys and this was a great education. I mean, again, that's why he's, you know, from the beginning, it wasn't about everything working out perfectly as planned. Be prepared for things to kind of go out of pocket sometimes, and but don't let that knock you off course. Um, so that settled me. It also made me understand that perhaps they were just a vessel. They, they were a resource, but God was the source. And I think they would say that too. They would say, we're the vessel. This movie is supposed to be made. You guys are supposed to make it. We have the resources. We hear from God too. And through us, he's your source. And so all of that just really, you know, you can be a nervous wreck just trying to get people's money back. Even if they're not sweating, it's like they weren't even sweating me for money. It's like, you know, they're not, you know, where are we now? You know, they're almost like they're angel investors, right? It wasn't about that. It was about go do your thing and learn from all the mistakes that you're about to make because that's how you learn. That's business. Learn from the mistakes. It was like, instead of sending me to business school, it's like, here, here's money. Go out there, trial by fire, do your business. 
and learn because those lessons are more valuable and you remember them much more than, you know, the case studies that you may study in business school. This is like real life. When I have Teamsters on Wilshire Boulevard threatening to shut down my production unless I sign their, their Teamster agreement. And then I have, you know, cast and crew upstairs shooting and you know, you just learn how to deal with things. You you learn how to buy time. As a producer, you have to sometimes just kind of kick the ball up the street and buy yourself more time. Um, so I did a lot of that. You know, it's all kinds of things. But now, and it was it was scary. <laughs> it was like, oh my goodness! This, they, and they were like, all those trucks lined up on Wilshire Boulevard. I'm going to pull all the drivers, and they're they're just going to stay there. They're not going to drive them back to the yard tonight. And I'm like, well, I can't sign anything without having my lawyer look at it first. And you know, I'm just buying time. And eventually, I decided to shut down the LA portion. We shot our interiors in Los Angeles, um, but the plan was to move on up to San Francisco and shoot everything else. So you're right. It's a lot of pivoting, even when you don't expect to. So we shut down LA maybe a week before we had planned to shut down the LA production part and relocate it and came to San Francisco and finished. So the goal is to always finish, always keep it moving. Even if you have to crawl, you're moving forward and being able to change your plan on a dime at a time, not be so married to something where you can't pivot quickly. Absolutely. And and to look for creative ways, I think, especially in Hollywood and, and show business, people tend to follow blueprints of what needs to be done. And then when those doors are shut, not thinking about creative ways. And, and this also speaks to um, what you brought up earlier of the story being the star first, right? People were coming to a museum uh, because the story resonated, right? So that, that first crew came and they told their cousins and they told their aunties and they told their, their best friend. Um, and, and I think sometimes we, we're we so focused on making a splash that we forget about the story and we forget about the quality of the content because that that's what keeps people talking. And especially when everything is just like this flash in the pan you know, what have you. I, I will say it was gutsy. I don't know if I would have released the same day as Brown Sugar. I'm like, everybody was in the same, all, all the same cast of characters are pretty much <laughs> in every one of those movies. I don't know that I would have had the, the foresight to do that. Um, but it does speak to quality content wins the day. And it, it may not win the day in the sense that you bring in $100 million. But if it's good, somebody's going to tell somebody about it. And it's it's taking the, the pride in that. Um, and, and even when that mainstream is not necessarily giving you your flowers in the way that you, you think that you deserve. And I mean, that also just want to go back to that resource, resource versus vessel. That'll preach for sure. That That is a word. Right. And and I think sometimes, too, we especially for overachievers and big dreamers, we are so hyper focused on letting people down, even if they're not putting the pressure on us that we're putting on ourselves that we get caught in that narrative that is completely in our heads um, that can inhibit us from actually thinking creatively about solutions to problems. So there, there are a lot of nuggets in here that I feel people are going to, to hold on to. But, but in the end, did you come out in the black? Did you and Christine come out in the black? Absolutely. It came out in the black. And in fact, we did so well with All About You that we had money to put back into the company and make All About Us, which is, you know, kind of a follow-up movie we did that, with, you know, Boris Kojo, Ruby D, Ryan Bathe, Morgan Freeman are in that movie. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So again, in my mind, I'm like, okay, All About You is doing so well. This is our 
intellectual property we have? What can we do to kind of keep that brand going? And so we decided to make a movie about really the behind the scenes and the making of All About You, what Christine and I went through, especially when we were trying to find distribution for All About You. So we made All About Us and it was about two filmmakers who hit a brick wall in Hollywood. So they decide to travel to Mississippi to find Morgan Freeman to convince him to be in their next movie. Since again, all these Hollywood studio executives told us you need big stars. So we're like, okay, let's go find a big star. And we kind of document that. And I would say 90% of that movie is... All true. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. How much of that is art imitating life? <laughs> Sadly, 90%, maybe a little bit more. Um, we actually went down to Mississippi, Clarksdale, Mississippi, where Morgan owns a blues club and a restaurant. And we knew that Morgan was going to be there during this weekend in August because the town was holding their annual Sunflower Blues Festival, which is a huge festival. And Morgan loves blues music. And, you know, Ground Zero Blues Club is his club there. And, you know, so we went to kind of scout and to deliver, personally deliver the script to Morgan. Because as independent filmmakers, we tried to send the script to his agents. They weren't hearing it. We tried to send the script to his uh, production company, Revelations Entertainment. They're like, okay, do you have distribution? All those questions that we typically get. What I've learned is actors want to read scripts. And so we're like, you know what? All of these doors are closed here in LA. We need to go to Mississippi, where Morgan lives. He lives in Charleston, Mississippi, and find Morgan and hand him the script and just plead our case and see if he would read it and consider being in this movie. And it was a good script. I mean, Christine's a great writer. It was a really good script. And so we did that. I think we had... So we had two children at the time, but they were, you know, I mean, they were young. One was in a stroll and one was barely walking, right? We go to Mississippi, we fly to Mississippi, and we map out the plan of how we're going to get to Morgan. We know where he's going to be because he loves this artist named Super Chicken, which is this great blues artist, one of his favorite. And so Super Chicken was playing at Ground Zero on this day, and we knew Morgan would be there. And this was like this military operation that we had. And um, the day before, we went to Ground Zero just to kind of camp out the blues club and, you know, just get our bearings. And, uh, and the next day we were ready. We met Morgan and everybody, Morgan's just a regular guy in Mississippi. Like he was dancing in the blues, his blues club with his socks and shoes off. And you would not recognize Morgan Freeman when he's in Mississippi. He drives a pickup truck. He's just a regular dude. And he leaves, he lives there because he wants to leave Hollywood to be just a regular country guy, right? Who loves blues music. Um, so we got to Morgan and we give him a copy of the, ask him, we give you the script. We explain who we are. We came from LA. And he's like, you came all the way from LA just to just like, yeah, because we couldn't, there were no, we couldn't make any inroads with, you know, your people there, your people here. So we had to come and we want to give the script directly to you. So he took the script. He said he would read it. He said it would take probably a while because he had a stack of scripts at home that he had to, with like real offers, <laughs> million dollar offers, probably multiple million dollar offers that he had to get through first from the studios. But he really respected that we went through all of that trouble to kind of corner him and talk to him um, artist to artist, you know? And he, I think he had just done Million Dollar Baby. And then he won his Oscar that following February or March after the August that we had just seen him. He won an Oscar and then that changed everything. It, our project didn't go forward. I think he read it. Um, 
But then we decided, you know, why don't we document this experience in, in a movie? And we decided we would do that. We used our own money. And we had two weeks to make this movie because we backed it from the date of when our children had it to, had to start school, right? So, okay, we have two, two weeks to do this. Um, we shot one week in Los Angeles, and then we took all of our crew. We went down to Clarkston, Mississippi. And toward the end of All About Us, Christine had written a role for Morgan. Now, this is not the movie that we went to try to get on be in, but we met him. We talked to him. And so that has to be a part of the story, right? So she writes this role in for him. We went down to Mississippi to make the movie and I connected with Morgan's business partner and who, and also, you know, so they own the restaurant together. They own the blues club together. They own airplanes together. They're both pilots. And his name is Bill Luckett. And Bill uh, took a liking to us. And Bill agreed to let us shoot inside Ground Zero, inside Medidi Restaurant, which is their five-star restaurant down the street from Ground Zero. Um, And Bill Luckett was so well-connected. He's an attorney, but he's so well-connected in Clarksdale that he got the mayor to just kind of roll off the red carpet for us. So we didn't have to pay for any locations. Wherever we wanted to shoot in the city, we could shoot. It was was unbelievable, right? Uh, Bill just had one request. He says, well, is there a part for me in the movie? And um, so if you see All About Us, you'll see Bill Luckett playing the owner of Medidi Restaurant where we shoot. And he kind of, you know, takes the, the lead actors and shows them the artwork and all that. So um, so we're shooting the movie. We're shooting the movie. We're getting toward the end. And finally, and then we also go up in Morgan and Bill's airplane. Bill flies us up and we get shots of the Mississippi River and all this rich production value footage of Clarksdale that's in the movie, all for free, right? So toward the end of the um, our shoot, Christine and I were like, okay, we don't want Bill to read the script because Morgan's in there and we don't want this to all blow up. You know, this we want it to be organic. And so Bill said, well, what do you want me to say? You know, what's my, what are my lines? And we gave Bill sides of just his part isolated. And so finally, when we were up flying, um, this little small plane, and Christine said, I'm not going up in the plane because we have kids. You know, you just go up. And we went up with my director of photography in the first AD. Bill was flying the plane and I was in the passenger seat. So up in the plane, I said, well, Bill, you know, this is the first time we revealed that there's a little role for Morgan, you know. And so... um, I tell him that and I said, do you think Morgan would want to make a cameo in this movie? And by that point, Bill is so cool and so supportive that he's like, well, well, let's see, you know, um, write an email to me. I'll send it to uh, Morgan and his publicist and we'll see what he says. It turns out Morgan said yes, because that, by that point we had this was like a love letter to Clarksdale. Right. Um, this movie. Uh, the only problem was Morgan was shooting a movie. I can't think of the name, with Jack Nicholson in L.A. And so Morgan could not be in Mississippi while we were shooting. So we had to arrange to shoot Morgan back in L.A. And we had a limited amount of time to shoot him. And we picked out an area that kind of looked like Clarksdale. I rented a red pickup. We cheated a red pickup truck in Clarksdale. So you can only see the top of it wipe the screen. And, you know, I found a guy who looked kind of like Morgan and said, you know, just if you can hang here and give him some money, we just want you to drive this pickup truck behind our main actors in the car. And then we had Morgan do the same thing, but now we have the camera on him and we matched it and it worked. 
So um, so we got a story out of really going to Mississippi to kind of track down Morgan Freeman. And we still have that script that we want. I don't know if he I don't know if he's right for it anymore. He's a little older, but we still have that project that we hope to do soon. So I've seen all about us as well. Stunning shots. I've never been to Mississippi, but stunning shots. It's very, you know, down in the Delta. Um, but I was cracking up in the scene where Edward and Stacy, you know, the characters' names are at Latanya Richardson's character's home. So when you said um, that this was your story, so I remember Edward's vegan in the in the movie. So, but I was dying at the the dinner scene where <laughs> clearly there is meat, and it's not just meat; it's like ham hocks or something on your plate. And and Stacy is like, just please, just eat it, right? So I was dying because that was such a like city folks coming to see Southern relatives moment of like (laughs) from the meal to the the whole situation, the jet magazine, all of it. Um, But I didn't know at the time that that was really an accurate portrayal of at that level, the 90% of the life that you guys were were really living. Um, Talk to me about how you got Ruby D for that movie. A Broadway play or musical. I I don't remember what it was, but we were living in Hartstill, New York, in Westchester County, and Ruby D lived in New Rochelle. So we were taking the Metro North from Grand Central Station back up to Westchester County, and lo and behold, Ruby D is sitting behind us. She had come from a Broadway production as well, and I'm like, Christine, that's Ruby D, and she was by herself, and we're like, well, why? You know, where's she going by herself this late? You know, and Hartsdale, the Hartsdale stop and the New Rochelle stop are on two different tracks, two different lines. So we realized she was on the wrong train. So I go up and talk to her. I'm like, you know, hi, Miss D. And, you know, it's a pleasure to meet you and all this stuff. I mean, she's just a legend. And I said, um, this train is going to Hartsdale or White Plains, that line. And everybody knows she lives in New Rochelle. And she says, I'm on the wrong train. And um, then she calls, she picks up her phone and calls um, her husband, Ossie. She's like, Ossie, I'm on the wrong train. <laughs> and she's so adorable and so cute. Um, before she called her him, we told her we're parked at the Hartsdale station. We're ha- we'll be happy to drive you home, you know, if you want to get off with us. And she agreed to that. So she's calling Ossie to say she's on the wrong train. And then she tells him, but this young couple, they're going to drive me home. Now, if I were Ossie, I would be freaking out. Like, you know, who are these people? You get in the car with them. And, um, but that's how we first met her. We get off at Hartsdale, we hop in our little Honda Accord and we drive her to New Rochelle and and let her off. We didn't meet her husband. It was so late, but we made sure she got in and we're like, okay, we would never forget this night, right? Um, and so, and this is when we're still living in New York. So flat, flash forward all those years later, when we thought of someone who can play this wise lady, right? We thought of Ruby D. And I felt it was important that Christine got to direct such a legend, such a living legend, you know, so that she can always say that she directed Ruby D or Morgan Freeman or all these other folks. But Ruby D was just someone who we had admired as an actress for so many years. And, uh, and then to have that personal connection with, with her was, you know, you, you just never forget that night. 
Um, so we reached out to her and um, got her the script. And we were like, is she going to do it? Because it's Mississippi. She would have to travel. It was like a big ordeal, but we knew she would be perfect for that role. And she agreed to do it. We brought her down to Mississippi. We shot her on one day. So we brought her down on a, on a, a Monday with, with her granddaughter. We shot her on a Tuesday. And that morning, I announced to the crew that this is such an important day. We're calling this day Ruby Tuesday because we are going to be in the midst of a legend. It's all about her. Uh, and I was concerned it was so hot in Mississippi, right? I mean, we're shooting this movie in, in you know, early August. Um, so we were, we were all on high alert on our best behavior and we're so honored and humbled that once she agreed to do the movie, but then we fly all the way down to hot Mississippi and the Delta to do our movie. And then, um, on Ruby Tuesday and then, you know, the next day she flew back home and it was, you know, that's how we got her. You know, she was just, um, she's a true artist and, and she really believed in us as a husband and wife team. She said that. In fact, Ruby D is also the person who encouraged us. That time we had three sons. She encouraged us to go for a girl. She says it's important to have a door. You know, okay. So we were driving her back to the airport, and we had this conversation. She said it's important to have a daughter because she will teach your sons how to treat a woman. You know, mm-hmm. it's important that that boys have sisters. You know, and we're like, wow, you know. And so we just decided, okay, well, Ruby D said <laughs> to have another <laughs> to go for a girl. There's no guarantee you're gonna have a daughter, but um, but yeah, I'll never forget that. It's just, um, it's just. I mean, she was really dear to us and kind to us, and just full of wisdom. That character was full of wisdom that Christine had written. But the time we got to spend with her, just alone, you know, was just. We'll just never forget it. That's just. That's not what I expected. <laughs> Here, in terms of how you originally met Ruby D, giving her a ride home, Miro Show, which is which, but what I'm, I, through all these stories and the things that you said, it's so clear to me that your life and your work is, they're both so God ordained. You know, these, these often talk about when we're on this journey, there are markers, just like you have mile markers on the turnpike, what have you. There are things that are meant just to give us an indication that we're headed in the right direction. Even though it's not perfect, things are going awry. Those, to me, are the reminders that you are you are moving in the way that you're supposed to be moving in your life. And everything doesn't always happen where you, you know, people, we have this like microwave mentality. If everybody wants to be an overnight sensation. I got this idea and I did this one thing and it blew up. And now, you know, I'm the toast of the town. But for most people, it just doesn't happen that way. And for most people who have sustainable success, it doesn't happen that way because you need that foundation. You need that pruning that happens through the process. But your pruning didn't stop at, at that point, right? So you've, you've made a couple of amazing movies. Let's talk about the financial crisis and how that impacted your business and your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 2008, our country had this financial crisis. And that is also the year that we had our daughter. Um, And again, we took a lot of the money that we were making from All About You to put back into our business. We used our money and our company's money to produce All About Us. But the idea was when All About Us is released, it's just going to, you know, help All About You continue to break records on, on DVD. And it was also on television. So we just felt it was this nice companion piece that would create another revenue stream um, for that movie, All About Us, but also continue the this evergreen that has become All About You. 
And because of the financial crisis and also because of Netflix coming on the scene and changing how we view entertainment, right? We don't, they were changing the landscape so that we wouldn't have to go to Blockbuster anymore or wouldn't have to go to movie gallery or Hollywood video to buy or to rent DVDs. Now we can stream these movies and now we have access to movies from around the world, which as a film lover, that was, that was heaven for me, you know, but as, as an entrepreneur, as a producer, as a production company owner, it was terrible because, um, it knocked out this entire DVD market. And so I like to say, you know, when the Hollywood studios catch a cold, because they they took a hit as well when the streaming platform launched. When those studios catch a cold, smaller production companies like mine catch pneumonia. And as a result, our home entertainment distributor was still collecting money from our titles, but they were refusing to pass that money along to us, what, what our titles had made, because, you know, they were trying to stay relevant. Um, they were trying to keep their doors open. So they would get money from Blockbuster and we were doing so well, they would get money from Walmart or Target, but they weren't, they weren't distributing it to us. And eventually they owed us for about 18 months worth of sales that we did not uh, receive and just had a baby September, uh, 2008. And it was really a perfect storm because, our cash flow was tied up into a movie. We were expecting to continue to get quarterly payments for you know our, our other title. We had movies on on cable. We had movies still down the street at Walmart and on shelves, but no income. And so that's when I'm like, okay, this is not good at all. And again, you you go into survivor mode. You go into um, provider mode as a husband. And as a father, and you try to buy yourself time, um, but it was a catastrophe in our entire country, and it was very difficult to keep things afloat. And I remember Thanksgiving, two thousand eight, Thanksgiving Day, we were down to ten dollars for kids, for kids, ten dollars, and um, and you know everybody think you are just like paid, you know Morgan was in your last movie, and you got movies on TV, and you got you know. Um, but again, as I mentioned earlier, the entrepreneur, there are a lot of highs and lows. And so down to $10, Thanksgiving Day, I remember, okay, what do we do? Do we buy diapers? Do we, you know, it was the first year that none of our friends invited us over for Thanksgiving dinner. And I don't know if that's because we had, you know, a, a new baby and they didn't want to, they probably thought, we, I don't know what it was, but um, that whole experience taught me that there was nothing else I can do. Like my wisdom, my resources, my connections, my being savvy as a producer, none of that could help. I had to completely surrender. I had to become totally dependent on God. And that's when I'm like, okay, I don't know what to do, but I'm just going to trust you no matter what. I don't know. This is so uncomfortable. This is embarrassing, but I know this is going to work out for my good. And, you know, looking back, you go through fires and it's uncomfortable and there are a lot of sleepless nights. Um, but you come out of the fire not smelling like smoke and you come out of the fire wiser and you come you and, and with more courage because now all of a sudden you see what God has done. You see how he has stretched you, how he has developed you and how he has molded you 
to trust him no matter what. And, you know, we sing all these songs growing up and I surrender all and all that stuff. And that's cool. But it's not until you really go through something where you understand what that means, where you really do have to surrender when you know there's nothing else I can do. I, I trust you no matter what. And I leave the consequences to you. And so that's what we went through. And, you know, you know, you use your skill set to try to negotiate with people, creditors, or, you know, try to work out deals with the mortgage. And everybody in the country was doing this, but you're just trying to stay afloat. And looking back, I realized, well, first of all, I was like, you know, you get over pretty quickly. Why is this happening to us? You know, we're the ones just, we're, we're your vessel. We're doing this for you. We're, our company is Faith Filmworks. We're, it's again, it's not about us. I learned that we went through that and we came out of it, right? God is a God of restoration and we came, we're fine and all that. But looking back on that time, while we were going through it, there was a peace that we, a level of peace that we got to. We didn't have it in the beginning. We were like, what is going to happen? We got four kids who look hungry. You know, we got a mortgage, we got a car. And you gather your bearings and then you surrender. And you said, you just tell yourself, I just have to trust you no matter what. And at the end of the day, we're a family who love each other. We got each other. We're healthy. Let's just ride this storm out. And on the other side of the storm, we realized that one, we can endure a lot of stuff by depending on him and leaning on him and trusting him. Uh, But more importantly, he taught me personally that, okay, now we have a track record. Come what may. That's like, if I can get through this with kids, our marriage was even stronger. It's like, you know, you know, it felt like we're being punished when it, when it all kind of collapsed. But looking back, it's like, wow, what a blessing. What a blessing. Because now, all of a sudden, I have a level of compassion and understanding for people who are going to go through the same thing. I can be a blessing to that person. I have a testimony. You know, some people can say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm about to lose my house and I can't pay my bills and I don't have any food to put on the table and I can't. And I can look at that person and say, you know, God's going to bring you through. You're going to be okay. I've been there. That's so that will resonate with that person. That's so different from me being this haughty Christian saying, well, where's your faith? I'll pray for you. What'd you do wrong? You know what I mean? Blaming that person. No, there is a compassion and, and an understanding and an encouragement and a reassurance that I can now impart to someone who's going through something because I've been through it too. And now they can look at you on the other side of it. That's a blessing. So we go through things, not for us. God allows us to go through things so that we can be a blessing to someone who we may not have even met yet. You might meet 10, 20 years later, you know? So it's, it's all orchestrated in a way that we're used to be a blessing to other people. And even if it's uncomfortable, there's a peace that I think, I definitely know he gave us, but there's a peace that comes with those things that doesn't make sense, that you can't explain, but that we had, you know? And, um, and so that was a, a huge lesson that I learned. And so I've had, I've had a little of nothing. I've had nothing. <laughs> uh, I've had a lot. And coming out of that experience, I, I truly understand and embrace contentment. You know, I can have nothing and I can have a lot of stuff. It doesn't phase me anymore when you go through certain things. And I think that's what God had to do. Look, if, if everything had struck like I thought it should have after we finished All About You, I would have been, a, I would have, I don't think I could have been an effective vessel for Christ in my business. 
I don't think I would have been able to connect with people in the way that I'm able to do now because I've gone through something and I've hit rock bottom and I've had experiences and I can relate to things and I can connect with people. That's how God uses us. You know, you have, he, he has to take us through things so you can have a testimony to encourage people. That's why I think this conversation is so timely because you know, I've been reading the articles about how the entertainment industry particularly is has been hard hit um, in, in, in ways given this pandemic. And, you know, I was looking at an interview with a, a guy who's a production manager for live shows and was scheduled to leave on a Justin Bieber tour. And the whole the, the contract for the remainder of the year is up in smoke. And he was talking about his crews and, you know, they're counting on this and they have families. So talking to you now about what you experienced then and even talking to my friends and former guests that we've had who work in the business and other industries that are affected and week by week, just watching the anxiety get a little higher and higher as this um, sort of goes on. And it's going to be a while before we return to normalcy. I think your story is going to resonate with people for sure. And the other thing that stands out to me is I've been talking to friends who are in a number of industries, but about their marriage and their relationships and the strain that the economic uncertainty is taking on them and um, salaries being cut from medicine, which sounds crazy, from medicine to the law, everything, right? Because it's a a trickle-down effect. So marriage is work and marriage is hard on a normal day. But then when you add all these extenuating circumstances, it's even harder. But particularly in your case, case show business is hard on marriage and family and, and Hollywood and everything that comes with that. So what do you attribute uh, the ability to be able to forge such a strong foundation in your marriage and grow through hardship? What do you attribute that to for you and Christine? Well, Christine and I met when we were teenagers, right? You know, before we had any idea we would have careers in this industry, I went to her senior prom, you know, then we went to college together and then we kind of grew up together and we always had a love for Christ, first and foremost. And, and you know, we've been together 30, 30 years, 31 years, married 26 years. So that's a lot of time to grow through a lot of things together, learn from those experiences and become even stronger. Um, So I think it has a lot to do with us just knowing each other so well and us as a married unit, trusting God to take care of us, take care of our needs, not give us everything we want, but, but to give us the things that we need in our marriage and our family and our lives and equip us so that we can continue to be servants and vessels in our industry. And I think with that perspective, it just keeps everything in its proper place. You know, that's the priority. And we never put our careers ahead of God. We don't put our children ahead of God. You see that a lot, you know, uh, we don't, you know, so there's balance. Everything is prioritized in a way that is in order. And, um, I think that has really helped us throughout our marriage. And so when when a crisis comes, we're good because of who we're trusting. And um, and I think, you know, my weaknesses are her strengths and her, you know, strengths are my weaknesses. And it's just a great we're great collaborators. We're a great team. And uh, I think our children see that. Um, And we're not Hollywood. You know, this is. we tried to be Hollywood. I think when we first moved out here, we're like, we about to blow up. We have this talent. We have this eye. We have this, this, and we got God behind us. Watch out. You know, there's nothing you can tell us. And then it was like, wah, wah. you know, none of that happened. But, but now where we are, the growth that we've had 
as Christians, as people, as a married couple. Um, now, the way I see he uses us is so humbling, you know, and I, I always like to say that I used to have all these goals, right? And I've talked a little bit about that. Like, I, I want to do this. I want to do that. You know, I remember reading Reginald Lewis's book, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? Let me just pause you. So that's Juan DeMarcus and, and my favorite book. Like, we've read it like four times a piece. But continue. So yes, I know the whole book. Please talk about it. And I'm like, <laughs> his life got cut short before he was able to become the first Black billionaire. And I remember reading that book and I was so charged up, you know, and I'm like, I'm going to become the first black billionaire. You know, this was like in the late 90s. Uh, so I had all these goals. And <laughs> for the benefit of our listeners, DeMarcus just flashed the, uh, the actual book on the screen. <laughs> I love that. Um, I had to do a complete 180, you know, just based on the journey that God has taken me on and, and what I've learned along the way. And it's, it's almost like I don't have any more, I don't have any more goals. I don't have any goals. I'm not trying to, well, we didn't even talk about NBC Universal, but I'm not trying to become the chairman of NBC Universal. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to become a billionaire anymore. You know, I'm not trying to do certain things that I wanted to do. Now it's all about how can I be used? How can I be a vessel for God? How can I be that spark in a very dark, lonely, hurting industry? How can I be the little spark that can illuminate a lot of darkness? And so if people were to ask me, where do you see yourself in five years? You know, where do you see yourself? You're still going to be doing this? My answer has become over the last 10 years or so, it's none of my business. It's really none of my business. I don't know. And if I remain open like that, if I remain this vessel, then I feel God can really use me and take me where he needs me to go to reach the people he needs me to reach who he loves so well. And that's so important. So I'm freed up, right? If I wanted to become chairman of NBC Universal, I'm smart enough to figure that out. I'm like, okay, I need to do this. I need to do that. I'm already senior vice president of production, but I can do this and then, you know, get buddy buddy with this person who's probably going to retire in seven, eight. I can be strategic, but I'm like, no, it's like I surrender all. When I surrender all, that means I surrender all my goals and ambitions and plans. Now, if God needs me to become the chairman of NBC Universal because he needs to have that platform to work through me and have access to whatever, then it's going to happen, right? But I'm not forcing anything. I'm not, I'm not riding a thoroughbred, you know, trying to get to the finish line as fast as possible anymore. I'm like a jellyfish. I'm moving slowly. I'm being aware of my surroundings. I'm sensitive to people and their needs. And if I need to float over somewhere, to be a blessing, I can do that because I'm not so caught up in my own goals, trying to reach my own personal finish line of accomplishments and achievements. You know, I won an Emmy Award for a project I produced called The Wayman Tisdale Story. And I was so um, happy that the project, that Wayman's story was recognized in that way because I felt his story gave so much glory to God right? The the sickness that he went through, you know, he had to have his leg amputated, you know, because of this bone cancer, but he still had this infectious smile. He still had this love for life. Even when his leg was amputated, he would still write music and go out on tour in a wheelchair. And it's like, how can you wake up after watching Wayman's story, for example, how can you wake up and have a bad day, right? It's all about just making the best of what you have. So I'm 
So I won an Emmy Award, but I realized the Emmy Award is a tool, right? It's a tool that I can put in my tool bag because there are a lot of people who respond to a piece of hardware in our business, right? It's like, oh, but I see it as God has given me something so that I can gain access to people who want, who appreciate things like that, right? It could be a superficial, it's a lot of superficial things in our industry, but it's a tool. And so that's my point. If God needs me to have something or to have a title or to have an award so that I can reach even more people who he needs to reach, who'll never go to church, who'll never read a Bible, probably hate Christians, you know, because they say we're, we're hypocritical or whatever, but he places me in their circles and they see the love of Christ in me and they see that there's no agenda that I have other than to love on that person and to encourage that person and to listen to that person and to just be there for that person. Then all of a sudden they don't see the church, they see Christ. And that's what we're called to do. So I understand, I understand how he can place you in certain places that he needs you to go, but I'm not driving it. I'm not driving it anymore. It's like, it's none of my business. And I just want to be his hands and feet and I want to be used. And another thing as a vessel, you don't get to choose. You don't get to decide who's the, who's on the receiving end of it. You know what I mean? You just have to be made available. You have to be there and be open. You can be like, no, I'm not going over there with those folks. They don't believe what I believe. They don't look like I look. They don't date who I would date. It's like, "Mm -mm, I want to go over here because it's more comfortable. They get me. It's like, no, we're supposed to go out into the world and seek and save that which is lost. And we don't get to pick and choose, you know? So that's, that's being a real vessel, I think. And that's what I endeavor to do all the time. I just, I always like to use this analogy. Like if, um, you know, say Wynton Marcellus, right? Wynton Marcellus was playing, he was giving this concert at Carnegie Hall. You know, he's playing his trumpet, just Wynton and his trumpet. At the end of the concert, Wynton will put his trumpet in the case. He'll lock up his trumpet case and it probably sit on the side of the stage. And He'll walk back to the center of the stage. He'll take his bow. And the crowd at Carnegie Mellon, uh, Carnegie Hall is going crazy because of this phenomenal performance that Witten just gave. Now, as Witten starts to leave the stage, you know, all eyes in Carnegie Hall are following Witten. His trumpet case is on the other side of the stage. Nobody's looking at the case. It's like Witten's getting all the glory and the praise and the honor, right? The trumpet was the vessel. The trumpet was the sound from which that beautiful music came that went and delivered. So I'm like, I'm the trumpet, I'm the vessel. And when, when the sound comes through me and blesses you, I don't want the shine. I have to go into the case, put me on the side of the stage, and God takes the bow, gets the glory, gets the praise, gets the honor, and exits stage right. And I, that's how I see my life now. And you're right. You talked about ego. You cannot have an ego with this mentality. (laughs) You can't be full of pride. You have to be vulnerable. You have to be humble. You can't pick and choose like Carnegie Hall. No, I want to play at Lincoln Center. No, no. you play where you're supposed to play. You play where you're placed to play. And that's how that's how I navigate my life now. There's no pressure anymore. I ain't got to prove nothing. It's like, use me. You know, and it's a daunting thing to say, use me. Um, but that's what I do. And I used to pray as a child. I used to pray for wisdom because, you know, I read about Solomon. I'm like, okay, he prayed for wisdom. But then he got hooked up with money and power. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to just pray for wisdom. And then I can get all this other stuff. 
And then I read an article maybe 10, 15 years ago, uh, that, that interview with Kirk Whalem and Kirk Whalem, saxophonist, you know, and Christian, he's probably a minister too, but Kirk Whalem said that he prayed for vulnerability, like, Lord, make me, keep me vulnerable so I can always trust you. So I can always depend on you and rest in you and don't get in my own way. And that blew my mind. And so from that moment on, when I read that article, I pray, I pray for wisdom and vulnerability. And those are, you know, vulnerability is a scary thing to pray for. But again, it's so important. Like whoever wrote I Surrender All, I mean, they got it right. It's a scary thing to surrender all because that means what if I, you know, what if, what if my house goes? What if my car goes? What if this cushy studio executive job goes? What does that mean? What is that? But when you're identity is not wrapped up in those things. It's like, it's good. I'm cool. No ego, no pride. Where do you need me to go? Who do you need me to minister to? Who do you, Hollywood is a mission field, right? Who do, where do I need to go? I'm on the field. I'm ready to play. I'm ready to do what you need me to do. So that's how I see my life now. And what's powerful about that within this Hollywood vortex is, I want to go back to the point you made about, you know, you don't get to choose. Right, who you are there to serve and to minister to. And what's interesting is people look at that business, they would give their left hand, right, to, to get into it and people have to glamorize you from what they see in the tabloids and on the red carpets and the awards and the accolades. Um, but because I went down the inter- entertainment law path at one point in my, in my career and I had a first a front row seat to it, I was taken aback by the number of people suffering through private pain unresolved trauma, dissatisfaction, loneliness, insecurity, all those things. And it was very dark and it was a bit overwhelming for me, especially if you're someone who has discernment or you're an empath, it's a lot to, to take in. Um, so the fact that, because people may hear this and they're like, well, it's easy to, you know, enjoy the mission field when you're in Hollywood, not really knowing how difficult it is behind the scenes and how many, how much toxicity resides in that environment. So to, to keep a posture of servitude and humility in that is not an easy feat at all, at all. To maintain that integrity, maintain, choose joy, and to choose to be a vessel when really people's default setting is, well, I'm going to be in this, I'm going to be ruthless, and I'm going to get as much as I can, as much power, as much money, all things, all the things to compensate me for having to put up with the difficulty that is this business. So that is commendable that you've been able to hold on to that, which speaks to how deeply rooted you are um, as well. It's obvious that you're living it and you're not just talking about it. Well, thank you. Uh, I just think that, um, I mean, I just take this so seriously. I just, um, you know, I want to, when this is all over, and my time is done on earth. I want God to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And, um, and nothing can replace that. You know, again, I've had a lot. I've had nothing. Uh, nothing can replace the love I have for God. What I've seen he, that he's done firsthand in my life and my marriage, my family, my business, all those things. So I can't, I can't let anything get in the way of that. You know what I mean? And and I, I have this great responsibility. I mean, I think he's really advanced me so quickly in this business that it doesn't make sense at times. And that adds on to the responsibility that I, that I have, that I take on to like not mess this up. You know, he's given me a platform and I, I can't mess this up. 
And it's a different kind of pressure from like, okay, I got to get the investors their money back, you know, because he, he deals with me every day. There's, you know, we're still people, but, um, but I think about him all the time, you know, and I think about, I just don't want to get in my way. I just want to do what he's called me to do. And if, if I look back on my time at Princeton Theological Seminary, when I knew for sure I did not want to be a pastor, a minister, I didn't want a pulpit ministry, I was able to leave after one year because they were like, you know, some of the professors would ask questions like, well, is God a he or a she? Does God exist? You know, these kind of questions. And that is, I guess, the study of theology. But I wasn't there for all that. I just was like, what does this scripture mean? Let's break it down even more. Like, but my my classmates who were called to the ministry, who also wanted to leave, couldn't do that. They needed that Master of Divinity degree to get hired by a church. So it was easier for me to move on because I'm like, you know, maybe I should just go to Sunday school a little bit more. Maybe that is what I'm missing. Um, so I, you know, it's like full circle now. This has perhaps become a ministry. I didn't think I would ever have a ministry. I didn't want a ministry, but there's ministry outside of the four walls of a church, right? Walking ministries. And um, I am on the mission field of Hollywood as a minister. And I just take that really seriously because people's lives are at stake. It's not about, I mean, TV shows come and go, movies come and go, you know, next year they're going to be a whole slew of new award winners. Um, Those things come and go. But if we can connect with people and they see something in us that makes them want to know about the God we serve, then I think that's why we're here. That's why we're planted where we're planted. So I have like this whole other long list of things that I wanted to discuss. And I know we're not going to get to all of them. But before we talk about your present day career at NBC Universal, I definitely want to touch on that. First, tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Outside of everything you already told me. I would say back when I was attending Princeton Theological Seminary, Christine was working at a day treatment facility. This is before she we left for New York. And she worked with troubled young children who many of them were foster children or they were living in, came from broken homes, living with, you know, one parent, just really troubled children. And so they would come to this day treatment center. And there was one, there was one young boy in particular, and I guess he was about 11 at the time. And so this is again, our first year of marriage who, you know, we would pick up from his grandma's house and she was older. You know, he's, we would pick him up and, you know, we'd take him to the movie, we would go to dinner. We'd just love on him because I felt he was the most, Christine and I both felt he was the most troubled in that whole facility. And I also felt he needed a positive male influence. Um, So when we eventually decided a few years later, we stayed in touch the whole time we were on the East Coast. We eventually decided to move to Los Angeles. We offered to adopt him. And I mean, we met with all the people and his his grandmother was okay with it and was so thankful that this young couple would, you know, kind of give him a new life. And, um, and at the end of the day, he decided he did not want to go with us to Los Angeles because he felt that would be too far away from his grandmother. And it was something that we didn't have any kids. So we, I mean, we definitely didn't want, I guess at that point he would have been like, you know, 13. I mean, you know, teen, we didn't want a teenager. This is all new, but we just felt 
if we adopted him, his life could just really change, you know, and we can expose him to so many things. And um, so that was that was an ordinary thing that I think we kind of stepped up to the plate and prepared ourselves to be ourselves to be extraordinary and give him the opportunity to have a life that was totally 180, 180 degrees from what he was currently experiencing. And, um, and we respected his decision to stay and not move across the country with us, although he wanted to, but, you know, um, and that's, and that's an interesting question, you know, because I think the things that we do, we don't set out to be extraordinary. I think we just set out to be us. We set out to meet the needs of people who, who have needs, and we saw a need and we're like, OK, and that's another thing about us. I said earlier, sometimes we do things like, OK, we have to do it. Maybe uh, there may be some might be slightly naive about it, naivete in there. But but we trust God and we just go for it and leave the consequences to him. Right. And um, so that was one of the cases, um, you know, and we haven't stayed in touch with him. But I just wonder at times and think about him often, like, where would his life be right now? You know. Um, so that's, that's something that came to mind, um, when you asked that question. Um, and, and for a young couple to make the decision before they've had kids of their own to take on a child of that age, which is a pivotal time in a young boy's life, especially you know what he's seen when he's not with you is a whole other thing. Um, but also showing that kids ultimately what they want is love. Even considering the life he could have provided and the things that could have been given, but he wanted his grandmother, right? And he wanted that connection is a lesson in and of itself. Yeah. And that's the only true family in his mind that he had. And he didn't want to abandon her. Like he had been abandoned by so many adults uh, throughout his life. He didn't want to abandon his grandmother, his only living relative. Right. So before we let you get out of here, I'm going to shift gears because your career came so quickly. You started your TV career at NBC and now you're back there and made the choice made the at a point to go in house. And what is your, your role of today? My role at NBC Universal is Senior Vice President of Production. And I started there in August of 2010. One of the reasons I even pursued a job outside of Faith Filmworks was because of what we experienced in 2008, 2009, and trying to figure out a way to feed our 400 children. And I said, okay, well, let me ride this out by going in-house. I produced movies for all these years. Maybe I can find a job at a movie studio overseeing movies. And initially looked for a job on the movie side and didn't find anything. But then I found a job on the television side. And I had never done television, per se, television production. But um, production is production. It's just a different pace. It's a much faster pace in television than when you produce movies. And you have an air date um, that you have to hit no matter what. And I got hired at, at NBC Universal as a production executive uh, working for Universal Television. And my job there has been, over the last 10 years, has been overseeing television shows. And some of the shows I've been responsible for have been Parks and Recreation, Community, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Good Girls, Master of None, The Good Place, um, Never Have I Ever, Maury Povich. Uh, so different kinds of shows. And then a lot of shows you haven't heard of, pilots that I've done that did not make it to air. Um, but that has been my role there. And again, it's this platform that I've been given that I didn't know what to do with at first. I'm like, okay, this is, thank God, he got me a job. We can now start paying some of these bills. 
We can start to get out of the debt that we're in. We can come up for air. Thank you, God. You blessed me with the job. And then I realized after HR told me that I beat out over 500 people for my position that, okay, this is not just a job. This is an assignment. This is an assignment at a studio um, to reach people and have access to people who are big time, you know, household named actors, you know, very successful television creators, uh, television show creators, showrunners, crew, all the way down to the caterers, craft service, PA, security, just having access to people who, again, just I need to have access to for him, you know? So he gave me that platform. And um, I've been really fortunate to work on shows that connect with younger people too. Uh, So I get emails and people find me on LinkedIn and they want to meet because everybody wants to do production and everybody wants to ask me questions. And so it's an opportunity to have people in my office, young people in my office who I don't know, but again, to be a vessel and to listen to them. And um, so it's a wonderful platform that God has given me so that, again, I can encourage people, give them advice pray with people. So many people have cried on the couch in my office as I've spoken to them after hearing their fears, their worries, their, I'm like, just, just relax. Just don't worry. You know, I'm just constantly saying that to people. Don't worry. It's going to happen in God's timing. It's he'll, he'll take you to where he needs you to be when he needs you to be there. And then it's a piece that just comes over a lot of people who I meet with when they leave my office and like, oh, I can't believe I'm on a studio lot crying. I can't believe I'm on a studio lot talking about God. You know, thank you for the encouragement. And that's the bigger picture for me. You know, thank you for taking up so much time out of your day to talk with me. And I'm like, that's why I'm here. You know, now I do a good job. I'm a great production executive. All my shows are on budget. They do really well. So that's important. But I also understand it's twofold. I'm there to minister to people, people who come across my pathway only because of the shows I oversee, only because of my title at a studio. But so those are the feathers in my hat and the tools in my tool bag that gets people in front of me. And they come to me. It's, you know, it's really wonderful. So, so I don't have a pulpit ministry. I never wanted one, but, you know, I guess I just have a production ministry. Production ministry. I love that. Uh, but also on the creative side, I think what you were doing in 2000 and then 2007, you look at where we are moving and the appetite is changing and shows that really prove that we're not monolith as a people um, and our stories are not monolithic. There may be some common themes, but they're not all the same. Those stories are coming to the forefront. You can think about the Clark Sister movie and what has happened with that. Cherish today on own. Really just these beautiful stories of how complex we are. I'm as people. Do you think that these stories are going to continue to grow in terms of reaching a level of mainstream success, for lack of a better term? Yes. Yes. Because these are universal stories. You know, they're stories that connect with people's hearts. And I think we're at a time in our society where we need hope, we need love. You know, we're just beating up each other. There's a lot of hatred being spewed every day. And we can only take so much of that. And so I think more and more people will gravitate towards something that is just goodness. Like, it's like we always joke that, you know, we want to do stuff that checks off everything from the fruits of the spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, hope, all that stuff, you know, Um, that's what people need. People's souls need to be fed. You know, there's so much tense uh, attention and stress 
and worry, um, hatred and killings and all kinds of stuff that I feel um, there's going to be a shift. And we're seeing the shift, but we'll continue to see the shift happening and more content being created like what we're seeing that would just make you feel good about life. We need right now, for sure. I'm going to ask you to make the same promise to me that you made. And that is, if you come to New York and start to play, to shoot around the interviews, that we got to do a follow-up with you. I want you to know that she called you her MVP. <laughs> you definitely did not disappoint. You two are the dream team. Um, and not just because of the work that you're doing in this business, but because of what you stand for. Um, we are, as I told her, we're pretty much an unknown show. And both of you so open to come in. And I'm just really grateful. Thank you. Well, thank you, Delisha. Thank you, Demarcus. It's been great being with you. Uh, and I love your show. So I'm so happy to have been a part of this. So thanks for inviting me on. I appreciate it. And if people want to find you online, where can they do that? I am on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my handle is at M.E. Swanson at M.E. Swanson. And I'm on Facebook, Michael Swanson. Awesome. So we're going to hold you to it. We're definitely, because there were like 17 other things on my, my list that I wanted to talk about with this industry that we didn't get to. And I knew it wasn't going to happen. But that just calls for another another conversation in the future. And I'm sure there'll be other amazing things uh, to talk about as well. We appreciate it. Uh, our audience, especially to our, our young creatives who listen to the show, who have an interest in figuring out how to do this business and carve a lane for themselves. Go check out Michael online. And he's already said that he's open to conversations and has had this conversation. Uh, check him out. Seek his wisdom. Say hello. Drop a note. Check out the film because they are out there. You can find All About You. You can, you can find All About Us. They are on Prime. I think Amazon Prime Video as well. Anything else? Any other content out there that people can find? Uh, for the Love of Ruth, to Helen Back, uh, and then more to come. And then my TV shows, they're they're all over the place, but yeah. Check, just check Michael's IMDb. Just do that because he has credits, okay? So check it out. Uh, support the work. We have to support our own and tell somebody about it. Just because, you know, movies have been out for, for 20 years, doesn't matter. We're supporting uh, We appreciate that. And support the show. If you've gotten anything out of this, like, share, subscribe, tell somebody about it. I'm going to listen to this interview. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 